2: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 22, 2024. Border security, one of the top issues at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, with news reports that President Joe Biden is considering executive action that could limit migrants' ability to claim asylum. Government funding also being discussed at CPAC with the first deadline before a partial government shutdown just over a week away. And aid to Ukraine, which is passed in the Senate and, according to Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry, would easily pass the House if given the chance. Coming up, discussion on these topics, plus a look at former President Donald Trump's popularity among CPAC organizers, speakers, and attendees. And we'll talk about an alternative summit called Principles First happening this weekend. Also today, reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling that frozen embryos created through in vitro fertilization are legally children who must be protected. We hear from Vice President Kamala Harris and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. And the White House says the FBI and Homeland Security Department are looking into today's AT&T cell phone network outages. U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, with a written statement today about the report that President Biden is considering issuing border security executive orders. New York Times, for instance, writes that President Biden is considering executive action that could prevent people who cross illegally into the United States from claiming asylum. Several people with knowledge of the proposal said Wednesday. Speaker Johnson today writes, Americans have lost faith in this president and won't be fooled by election year gimmicks that don't actually secure the border. Nor will they forget that the president created this catastrophe and until now has refused to use his executive power to fix it. If these reports are true and the president intends to take action, he can show he's serious by changing more than asylum policy. He should begin by reinstituting the Remain in Mexico policy and ending his administration's abuse of the parole system, among other crucial reforms. Part of the statement from House Speaker mike johnson congressman byron donalds republican of florida spoke about border security as the opening speaker at cpac the conservative political action conference being held at national harbor maryland
4: we have 7.3 million people who've come into this country illegally 7.3 million and joe biden wants to make it an even 10 million that's insane no country would ever tolerate this And so my position to my colleagues on Capitol Hill is clear. You either secure the border or you get no money for the government. now the press would say, oh my gosh, Congressman Donald, you're talking about the government being closed. Oh, are you concerned about that? To the people of the press, you got your answer from CPAC. But I tell these reporters when they ask me this, I say, the federal government has one primary job. It is to secure this nation and to secure its people. That's its first job before anything else. The states that ratified the Constitution of the United States would have never ever ratified a constitution that would have allowed the federal government to allow an invasion into the United States. They never would have signed it. Those states would have kept their militias and they'd have said, I'll see you guys later, maybe we can work some things out, but that document is nuts and there's no way I'm gonna be a part of it. So we have to be very clear about this joe biden has a decision to make decide mr president do you want to close mount rushmore so the southern border can be open do you joe biden want to tell the last remaining of our world war ii vets that they cannot see the world war ii memorial on the national mall so we can have military age men from china and the middle east coming to our country illegally Decide, Joe Biden, which country matters more to you, the border of the United States or the border of Ukraine.
2: Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican from Florida at CPAC. The federal government will partially shut down March 1st if another funding bill is not passed by then, and the rest of the government is funded until March 8th. Reports that President Biden may take executive action on immigration, especially using Section 212-F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which gives the president authority to deny immigrants entry to the U.S. if he determines it would be detrimental to the U.S. interest. Former President Donald Trump tried to use this authority, but a federal appeals court ruled that 212-F does not supersede asylum law. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, spoke about border security and the U.S. House of Representatives at Politico's Governor's Summit today in Washington
5: about the role that you're playing in the battle for control of the House of Representatives. You've taken kind of an increasingly aggressive approach, I think it's fair to say, when it comes to how House Republicans uh, you know, have not been able to pass, say, for instance, a border security legislation.
6: Right. I never thought I'd say this, Nick, because you covered me when I went to Congress right after the Tea Party was elected in November of 2010. I was elected in a special, took office uh, the following June. I miss the Tea Party. I miss John Boehner. I miss people that you could actually work with and get things done. I never thought I'd say that, but you heard it here. Because, Nick, I have to step up. Because even back a further generation, when I was an attorney for Senator Moynihan, I worked on the last major immigration bill that passed in 1986. And we were able to work with Republicans, Democrats, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan, and came up with a comprehensive plan that held for a long time. So I still believe that the possibility lies there to solve our most difficult problems. But it comes down to the personalities and the people who are in charge. So let's get back to the current speaker. When, John, when, when they're told by Donald Trump to unravel a package that was put together with the voices of a conservative senator, Democrats, and the Biden administration to deal with the border, and Donald Trump whispers in their ear and all of a sudden they're terrified and they immediately stop. That has an effect on my state. So I am involved in these house races. The path for Akeem Jeffries to become the Speaker goes right through the state of New York. Right. And there are six
7: House seats, I think. Six all together
6: House, house that are in play. seats. We just picked up Tom Swazis, uh, restoring him back to what had been a Republican seat, so that was a big win for us. And uh, you know the story how about that all played out, but I'm I'm committed to use all my resources as the leader of the party. I'm raising into the state party. I have a coordinated campaign with Kirsten Gillibrand, Hakeem Jeffries. I am leading hard in this because not just the fate of America is lies in the balance, but also my own state is affected, and that's why I'm so engaged in this.
2: New York Governor Kathy Hochul, Democrat, and political reporter Nick Reisman at the Politico. Governor's Summit in Washington, D.C. today. Story from the Hill The House Freedom Caucus pressed Speaker Mike Johnson to put forward a year long stopgap funding bill, which would trigger automatic cuts to government spending if he can't win concessions on controversial conservative policy riders. In a letter to Johnson on Wednesday, the hardline conservative caucus also asked for an update regarding spending talks with Democrats ahead of a March 1st deadline to prevent a partial government shutdown. That was from TheHill.com. Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, former Freedom Caucus chair, spoke about government funding today at CPAC, interviewed by Newsmax reporter Ed Henry.
3: There hasn't been any spending cuts. They talked about, you talked about, he talked about, uh, cutting the 87,000 new IRS agents. We'll get to the border in a minute, which you mentioned. Why have we not cut any federal spending?
1: Because unfortunately, there's one party in Washington, D.C. and around the country that's literally, as Russ says it kindly, seeking the fundamental transformation of America. We don't really internalize what that means. And there's another party that doesn't necessarily seek that, but's not really going to do much about anything to stop it. And and unfortunately, there are many Republicans that want to continue the spending. And they have their project, and it's so important to them. I will tell you, as a person who wore the uniform of the United States for over 35 years, funding the military is important to me. But the, the military hasn't passed an audit ever, ever. And to say that there's no waste or fraud or abuse there or some efficiencies there is insane. Yet, if you say that you want to take a look at the military and make some, find some efficiencies there, there are a bunch of folks on our side of the aisle that say, absolutely not. They will never vote for any of it. And as long as we keep doing that, there's always a deal to be made because they're going to vote for that. And they can always find enough Democrats to vote for all the other stuff. And they cobble that together. And then folks like me and Russ are left on the outside.
2: Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania at the CPAC gathering at National Harbor, Maryland. The Russ is Russ Fulcher, Republican from Idaho. Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, tells CBS Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett on his podcast, The Takeout, that the odds of a government shutdown are 50-50. And it is, in the congressman's words, a preventable disaster. Congressman McHenry also says he believes the House will support aid for Ukraine if it is allowed to come to the floor. Here's a portion of the podcast.
8: There is a majority in the House. That will support this. That will support it. I will support Ukraine funding. How does it get to the floor? Uh, that's going to be the tough mechanism. Uh, because the Speaker, I don't think, is going to be willing uh, to to go to bat for the Ukrainian people, for for uh, our commitments in Asia, for our commitments in the Middle East right now. and so He, he will go- not be willing to go to bat well, for that. Well, look, we've, we've, we've attempted—we passed one Israel bill, mm-hmm. um, which was— um, the mechanism to do that was a mistake. We took uh, funding that Democrats, by and large, would never accept. When if we just passed uh, you, Israel aid in the opening uh, last week of October, first week of November, it would be law now if yep. we just passed it. But we had a, we, they played politics with a pay for, which I think was a dumb decision then, um, and has made has been made manifestly worse as each week has gone by and Congress has been uh, unable to act. So. It comes to the floor of one of two mechanisms, either through um, either through a discharge petition, which requires a majority yes. signing their name on the line yep. for holding out for a long period of time, and then the bill comes to the floor over the objection. Any likelihood of, the of speaker. that? There's some likelihood of that. Twenty percent, thirty percent. Yes, and then no better than that. No better than that, and then there's probably a forty to forty-five percent shot that the second. Way to take a bill to the floor, which is a, a, uh, a procedural motion to cut off debate, which is moving the previous question. Now, this right. is parliamentary procedure yeah, it's and everybody very deep in the stop. weeds. Okay. Right. The moment here of a defeating of the previous question, we've not done this in generations right. in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, losing a rule vote, uh, vote, I view that as a cardinal sin, right? A cardinal sin. This is not some sort of trifling thing of a white lie. It is a major uh, grievous sin. Defeating the previous question is something like a nuclear device. Yeah. It is of magnitudes different than a sin. It is a vast act of war. Yeah. So that is the other mechanism to bring this bill to the floor. And if that would
9: it, indicate that pressure had built so much within the membership of the House that different allegiances were created to force the detonation of this parliamentary nuclear device. Yes,
8: but what is axiomatic about the House is that any speaker can stand in the way of a majority will on the House floor for a period of time, but not permanently. And here we have a substantial majority in the House of Representatives that is for the defense supplemental that the Senate passed. They support... 80 to 90 percent of what's in the bill uh, in about two-thirds of the House is of that opinion. It will get done. It will just be a question of how it gets done and how long it will take
2: to get done. Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina, on this week's podcast, The Takeout, with host Major Garrett of CBS News. The House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries of New York, the minority leader, telling ABC's The View on Wednesday... That when it comes to aid for Ukraine, Republican members Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania and Mike Turner of Ohio and referring to their visit to the Munich Security Conference saying they both expressed to Ukrainian President Zelensky and to us in our conversations that they want to find a way forward to work together and to get this bill on the floor for an up and down vote. Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican of Alabama at CPAC today, explained why he was a no vote when the combined $95 billion bill for aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan passed the Senate a couple of weeks ago.
10: Now, we're the one that forced this war because we kept forcing NATO on Ukraine and showing Russia, hey, we're going to build military bases on your borders. And Putin said, no, no, you're not going to do that. And so uh, now I've got a bunch of my people uh, that I'm in the Republican party with that voted for the 60 million B and I hadn't voted for any money to go to Ukraine because I know they can't win. Uh, they don't, you know, you, you hate that they've had three or 400,000 people killed. So Russians also, you hate that we supported this. We're pushing them out in front of the guns or out in front of the bus. I guess you'd speak. Uh, it's, it's an atrocity, but they can't win. And so we need to get diplomacy, but there's nobody in this White House, Secretary of State or Biden, that can actually go over and negotiate. Now we've done more negotiating in one month with Israel and Hamas, our group has, than we have for two years with Ukraine and Russia. We just want that war to continue on. We gotta get it over with. Donald Trump will stop it when he first gets in. He knows there's no winning for Ukraine. He can work a deal with Putin. Then we got uh, Middle East, And then you got China over over on the other side that's our number one adversary. This is a mess. I mean, all created by Joe Biden and his blundering in foreign relations.
2: Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican from Alabama today at CPAC. Saturday, February 24th is the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, was at a discussion today about that anniversary. It was held at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in Washington. As part of the interview with Max Bergman, director of Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program.
3: Maybe let me start by asking about how you see the state of the war right now with uh, USAID essentially having dried up uh, and with Ukraine uh, facing uh, a Russian offensive, having to see territory now running short on ammunition, uh, how do you assess the current state and and how long do you you know if we are not able to provide aid what is what is the outlook for ukraine
11: well it 's obviously difficult you know as i ma- as I made clear and as we see on the battlefield, um, that said, even just in the last three, four five months, Ukraine has had significant successes. Most of them have been in the asymmetric realm, uh, the damage they've been able to do to the Black Sea Fleet, uh, surprise attacks in places where the Russians weren't expecting them, good use of some of the long-range fires that the UK and others have helped help provide. Um, so the question, I think, is whether, uh, you know with, with, with increased US support, Many are saying the war will look like it looked in 23. I don't think so. I think with increased U.S. support, Ukraine can make significant strategic gains, not just in today's fight, but as I said, in building that highly deterrent military for the future. And they're getting far better at things like drone warfare and and other asymmetric uh, ways of fighting. And they now have the space to begin to rebuild their own defense industry. We have U.S. companies that are interested in joining in that, as well as Europeans. Um, But it will be a far better picture with this money.
3: So if Congress doesn't act, uh, I get this question often about is there a plan B? Is the administration thinking about how it could get aid to Ukraine? Is there a way to get aid to Ukraine without Congress actually allocating the funding to do so?
11: Max, we're on plan A. We're on plan A. And frankly, you know, the US Senate just passed this bill with 70 votes. Uh, So that tells you uh, that the American people strongly support continuing uh, to help Ukraine, in Ukraine's interest, but also in our own interest. So I think the question, as the House of Representatives goes out into its districts, uh, what message are their constituents giving uh, to their members of Congress? And how are members of Congress understanding what the world looks like and how they're going to have to answer if they don't support this funding. Um, so uh, I am an optimist on this front. Um, I think we will get there, but I think the American people need to speak strongly to their members.
2: Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You can find the video of this program in its entirety at a video library at c-span.org. The White House says that President Joe Biden met today in San Francisco with Yulia and Dasha Navalya, Wife and daughter of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in a Russian prison, White House says that the president expressed his admiration for Alexei Navalny's extraordinary courage and his legacy of fighting against corruption and for a free and democratic Russia in which the rule of law applies equally to everyone and that he affirmed that his administration will announce major new sanctions against Russia tomorrow in response to Alexei's death, Russia's repression and aggression, and its brutal and illegal war in Ukraine. That was part of the readout from the White House. President Biden made a brief statement to reporters. Hello, folks.
12: This morning I had the honor of meeting with Alexei Navalny's wife and daughter, as a state the obvious, he was a man of incredible courage, and it's amazing how his wife and daughter are emulating that. And we're going to be announcing the sanctions against Putin, who is responsible for his death tomorrow. And uh, but one thing I made that was made clear to me is that uh, Yolanda is going to she's going to continue to the fight he had underway. So we're not letting
2: up. Thank you. President Biden in San Francisco. story from the New York Times. President Vladimir V. Putin on Thursday took a short flight on a supersonic bomber, part of his pre-election effort to project confidence and power inside Russia and a conspicuous reminder to the West of his country's nuclear capabilities. The flight took only 30 minutes, the Kremlin said in a statement, but the range of the wide-wing Tu-160M, also known as a white swan in Russia, allows it to reach the United States with two dozen nuclear weapons aboard. That was from the New York Times. To the fighting in the Middle East, this from Associated Press, a suspected missile attack by Yemen's Houthi rebels set a ship ablaze in the Gulf of Aden on Thursday as Israel intercepted what appeared to be another Houthi attack near the port city of Elat. Authorities said the attacks come as the rebels escalate their assault over Israel's war against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. The Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh took questions about the Houthis and the war between Israel and Hamas at her news conference at the Pentagon.
0: First of all, on the, the Houthis, um, do you, does DOD assess that the Houthi attacks have ramped up over the past couple days? It seems like we're seeing a lot more activity. And then can you also tell us how many ships... Both uh, commercial and military have been damaged or taken offline by the Houthi attacks? I can, that's kind of similar to what Jen was asking. So I'll take that question in terms of U.S. ships and then commercial ships so we can get back to you on that. I think, um, yes, we've certainly seen in the past 48, 72 hours um, an increase in attacks from the Houthis, um, uh, more consistency. But again, I think. A, be helpful to point out, one of the ships that they did hit was the Ruby Mar, um, which has had to have its uh, crew evacuated, um, which is currently still in the water, but um, taking on water as we speak. um, It's creating an environmental hazard with the leakage of all the fuel that it's carrying. On top of that, it was carrying, to my understanding, is fertilizer. So um, the Houthis are creating an environmental hazard right in their own backyard. On top of that, um, as I mentioned at the podium the other day, uh, they hit a ship that was carrying grain towards Yemen uh, for their own citizens, for a starving population. So again, they're saying that they're conducting these attacks against ships that are connected to Israel. these are ships that are literally bringing goods, services, aid uh, to their own people, and they're creating their own international problem.
11: And just secondly, sure. um, I wanted
0: to ask you about Rafa. Has um, Has the IDF provided any plans to DOD about about for its plan to protect civilians ahead of any kind of ground invasion? I'm not aware of any plan fully presented to the to the United States to review. Again, we're not we're not asking to check their homework. What we're asking them to do is put forward a credible plan that they will be able to, as we have said in many conversations, protect the over one million innocent Palestinians that are there. Um, And of course, any credible plan would have to take into account um, food, medicine, services. How are you going to provide those as you move a population? Um, I know that's something that they're working through. The Secretary, of course, remains engaged with Minister Gallant, um, not just at his level, but levels here at this building and throughout the interagency. But um, I'm just not going to get ahead of any plans that Israel's working on the right now. He has
7: not seen that plan yet. No,
0: we're not. We haven't seen the plan, but we're not also asking to grade homework here. Uh, we want to make sure that whatever plan that they, uh, you know, do brief us on does include um, protecting innocent civilians in that in that region.
2: The Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh at her news conference at the Pentagon USA Today with an update. White House Special Envoy Brett McGurk was in Israel on Thursday to breathe new life into talks aimed at a ceasefire and the release of hostages while also trying to dissuade Israeli leaders from a ground invasion of the southern Gaza city of Rafah. The visit comes as senior officials on both sides of the war suggested a breakthrough could be near. That was from USA Today. Washington Today continues in a moment.
13: This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign.
12: It all started as a bold experiment on March 19th, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress, to the White House, to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades.
13: Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org/slash/donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org/slash/donate. Thank you.
2: Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. The Alabama Supreme Court rights Associated Press recently ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law, raising concerns about how the decision could affect in vitro fertilization, commonly known as IVF. The decision issued in wrongful death cases brought by couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident could potentially leave clinics vulnerable to lawsuits and restrict access to treatment. On Wednesday, the University of Alabama Birmingham Hospital paused IVF treatments while it considers the ruling significance. On Thursday, a second IVF provider in Alabama said it's pausing parts of its program. Vice President Kamala Harris spoke about this and also about abortion policy at a roundtable in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
13: So not only is it about freedoms that have been taken and what that means in a country that prides itself on being a democracy that upholds and fights for freedoms and liberty... It means that in states across our country people have been suffering and we must be explicit about what that is because this is not a hypothetical point women have been given having miscarriages in toilets in our country have been denied access to emergency care because of what has been happening and then as the governor said most recently putting access to IVF at risk. Think about that. Individuals, couples who want to start a family are now being deprived of access to what can help them start a family. So on the one hand, the proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to end an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, the individual does not have a right to start a family. And the hypocrisy abounds on this issue when you also consider that in the top 10 states with maternal mortality, Mm. Mm
14: -hmm.
13: there are abortion bans. I have often challenged the folks in those states who propose to say that an abortion ban is in the best interest of women and children, ask them why have they been so silent on an issue like maternal mortality?
2: Vice President Kamala Harris at the Fountain Street Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, today. President Biden put out a statement about the Alabama Supreme Court's decision on IVF that includes this line. The disregard for women's ability to make these decisions for themselves and their families is outrageous and unacceptable. An article at Politico days after the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law, several top Republican governors said they're supportive of in vitro fertilization procedures. Speaking at the Politico Governor's Summit on Thursday, Governors Brian Kemp of Georgia, Billy of Tennessee, Kevin, state of Oklahoma, and Chris Anunu of New Hampshire all weighed in on the latest front in the battle over reproductive rights ahead of the November elections. The decision complicates the Republican Party's standing with millions of people, who may oppose abortion but support and in many cases use in vitro fertilization and other forms of fertility care. One in six Americans who struggle with infertility turn to IVF according to the National Infertility Association. That was the reporting from Politico. Here's part of that governor summit with Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, interviewed by Alexander Burns.
7: What's your reaction to the the Alabama Supreme Court this week ruling that that frozen embryo has? Yeah,
9: I, I mean, look, we are, we're focused on getting our law implemented in Georgia. I mean, it's been a, a long fight for that. We're focused right now. We've got a record amount of mental health funding we're doing. We're trying to get another bill uh, passed through the Senate that got through the House last year. I mean, I have not had a chance to look at the Alabama legal ruling. So I, mean, I, I wouldn't even want to try to pretend to understand what the issue is there and and get into that policy debate.
7: Are you comfortable with IVF as a procedure? I
9: am, yeah. Yeah.
7: Um, it was just surprising to me yesterday, you saw you know, Nikki Haley has uh, uh, struck some chords that are similar to what you just said about the sort of need to find areas of consensus, and this is a very divisive issue. Surprising to see her say that she thinks frozen embryo has personhood status. Uh, that, well, like
9: a, well, you have a you know you have a lot of people out there in this country that they wouldn't have children if it wasn't for that.
7: Yeah.
9: You running out of questions?
7: No, <laughs> I'm just deciding whether to. Uh, I'll to, ask you to, one to stay you with that. this or. <laughs> it's a super important issue, right? And it 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 is a an intensely personal issue for voters, right? And I I do just I I guess I'm sort of trying to figure out where to whether to push you on this a little bit further, that...
9: Uh, I think that'd be a terrible th- idea. There are,
7: like, there are clearly a lot of voters, right, who uh, are not totally comfortable with the idea of abortion, but also don't love the idea of the government telling them too too much about what to do in that part of their lives, right? Yeah, I just that's wonder, not
9: shocking in today's political environment. You know, yeah. people are disagreeing about a lot of things. I mean, the thing is, we got to be able to disagree, have, you know civil conversations about these issues and and look at facts and and data and then at the end of the day if people are still disagreeing you know that this is an issue where that is going to happen uh and there's other issues like that 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 may happen i mean you you know climate you know what what we should do uh in our military conflicts around the world and you know I, i think Those are those are discussions where we got to get back in this country, where we're working together on things to
2: find solutions versus, you know, just blaming the other side. Governor Brian Kemp, Republican from Georgia at Politico's Governor's Summit today in Washington, D.C. And now a closer look at CPAC. ABC News reports this year's conservative political action conference, an erstwhile cross section of the GOP that has turned into a major staging ground For the party's MAGA grassroots, is set to kick off in full force on Thursday. The four-day conference, which formally started on Wednesday before big events begin Thursday, is expected to continue its relatively new legacy of vociferous support for former President Donald Trump and opposition toward his perceived enemies, both within and outside the Republican Party. That was the reporting from ABC News. And many of the speakers today did explicitly endorse Donald Trump for president in this year's election, is Ben Carson, a former presidential candidate himself and then Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Trump administration.
14: The law is being used to constantly harass upstanding citizens while the real criminals go untouched. To our leaders, you and I are the enemy, not the carjackers and the looters and the criminals who are running rampant in our cities. And now our justice system has been weaponized against the administration's top political competitor with absurd witch hunts from every corner of the country. It reminds me of the old Soviet slogan, you show me the man and I will find you the crime. They are throwing everything they have. Think about it. Everything they have they're throwing at President Trump because they're desperate to stop him and they're desperate to stop you And me, Trump's only crime is representing the American people first. And for that, you know, for that, they're trying to put him in jail for the rest of his life, tie him up in court, take all of his assets. They are terrified of him. They are incredibly unfair. And if we allow this to happen, America will never be the same again. We have to stop it.
2: Ben Carson, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary in the Trump administration, today at CPAC. New York Times headline reads, CPAC straw poll sliding Haley will ask about Trump's ideal running mate. Refers to the traditional straw poll that at past conferences asked who the attendees prefer as the Republican presidential nominee. And Haley referring to Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor running against Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination this year. Story from the Hill, CPAC Exhibition Hall for the 2024 events includes a variety of merchandise, trinkets, and even a twist on the traditional pinball game. The virtual pinball game created by an entrepreneur features photos from the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots, former President Trump's Stop the Steal rally earlier in the day, along with graphics of the U.S. Capitol and media networks MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN, the game can be played over several modes, including Stop the Steal, Fake News, Peaceful Protest, It's a Setup, Babbitt Murder, or a reference to the January 6th rioter who was shot and killed by police after trying to climb barriers at the Capitol, Have Faith, and Political Prisoners. As you play each mode, videos from the insurrection play on a screen above. That was reporting from The Hill. CPAC is hosted by the American Conservative Union. The first conference was in 1974. ACU chair is Matt Schlapp. And he said on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast on Wednesday that some news outlets and journalists will not be receiving media credentials this year.
12: We have people that run around and say they're journalists. And if you look at their feeds, 100 percent of their stories are, let's get what Republican, what conservative, as you said, who can we mischaracterize who loves America And let's go get them. And let's make trumped up charges on them from anonymous sources. And Russ has, uh, Russ Vogt, who's a hero uh, of mine and many uh, has had to deal with this. And everyone who does anything that's worthwhile has to deal with this. You have to deal with it probably more than anyone, or just that would be Donald Trump who deals with it more than anyone. So this tactic they're using against Trump is intergalactic, but they're using similar tactics against all of us. So CPAC has a new rule. If you're a propagandist, you can buy a ticket, Uh, like everyone else, but you're not in the media and we're not going to credential you by saying you're in the media. Now, there's plenty of left wing people who are in the media who actually, you know, at least 20 percent of the time or 25 percent of the time they'll take on Menendez or they'll say Biden's too old or you know, they at least have some coverage that you could say, okay, there's some journalism there. But as we know, what's happened to these uh, corporate media entities is they're 100 percent. If you listen to MSNBC, it's 100 percent anti-Trump, Anti-America, anti-conservative, every moment of every day. They never have any kind of honest treatment of anything. And they run anybody off from the station who used to be at least somewhat honest some of the time, like Chris Matthews and such. So, you know, let's get real. Let's not credential them anymore. And we're not going to do it.
2: American Conservative Union Chair Matt Schlapp on the podcast hosted by Steve Bannon, former White House advisor to former President Trump and Semaphore reports that reporters from MSNBC, Washington Post, HuffPost, and others were denied credentials for CPAC. The CPAC account on X has been posting not only who is invited to this year's conference, but who is not invited. And that includes former U.S. House members, Republicans Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who served on the January 6th attack on the Capitol investigative committee. The message from CPAC posted, Unfortunately, some members of the GOP have proven they're not conservative at all, so they don't make the cut. Those members, though, have been, or former members, have been invited to another summit this weekend, hosted by the group Principles First. C-SPAN spoke to founder Heath Mayo.
15: Principles First is a grassroots nationwide effort, I think, to kind of refocus the conservative movement on principles instead of personalities, uh, you know, our, our flagship event every year is the the Principals First Summit, which is this weekend. It's the same weekend as CPAC, which I think has come to represent sort of everything wrong with the conservative movement, the corruption, the grift. Um, you know, this is about personalities for them instead of our principles. And so we're really excited about uh, everybody that's coming together this weekend. But that's uh, that's what Principles First is all about.
10: How many people are in your group at the grassroots level, and who are some names that uh, are part of your group that folks might recognize?
15: Yeah, I mean, we've got literally thousands, tens of thousands of people around the country. Um, you know, we're sold out at the Conrad this weekend, but some names people that will re- will recognize, um, Brad Raffensperger will be there, obviously stood against all the assaults against the election in Georgia uh, we've got Adam Kinzinger, Governor Hutchinson, Asa Hutchinson, who, who you know, ran for president in the Republican primary and spoke some hard truths. Judge Ludig, um, George Conway, uh, just a lot of great folks, great leaders. Cassidy Hutchinson, those folks who really t- took a stand when they were serving in the Trump administration, when, when the Trump administration went astray. So a lot of folks who have really been sounding the alarm about the threat that President Trump represents um, and so we're, we're encouraged and we're excited about uh, the folks that are coming together.
10: Some of the media have called principles first, the never Trumper group.
15: I mean, that's fair. I mean, I think I think a lot of the folks in the room are upset with the direction of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. They don't like what they see um, under the leadership of President Trump and others. Um, so I, I think this is a really important voting block, honestly, of of frustrated Republicans, even independents who, I, you know, We're not deciding who the Republican nominee is necessarily, but in in November, you know, we're going to decide who the next president is. And if you want to be the president, you want to win swing states, you're going to have to make a compelling case that you're putting principles first and and not just yourself.
2: Heath Mayo, founder of the group Principles First on the Washington Journal program this morning on C-SPAN. C-SPAN has been covering CPAC Live today and will again Friday, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern or so, whenever they get underway in the morning. And we'll be live with the Principal's First Summit, Saturday, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican, has also been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump. The governor has endorsed rival Nikki Haley for the Republican presidential nomination this year. Governor Sununu was at the Politico Governor's Summit today and spoke about the future of his party and the nation.
5: People confuse the party with Trump. And Trump is the uh, Trump's party. It, it is. He is the talk. That's right. That's that's the point. It won't be his party forever, right? It, it just won't. At some point, Donald Trump won't be here, or whatever. You know, like one way or another, we all have our time. Um, so <laughs> okay. we do. We do. So I'm very optimistic about the Republican Party. I'm very optimistic about where we're going as a country. I, I'm not one of these. If you're one of these people who think democracy is getting eroded and the institutions are crumbling, stop. It's not. This country has gone through hell and back a lot. We had we had it. Let's go all the way back to a civil war where we were getting completely torn apart. Our institutions stood strong. We go through World War I and World War II. We go through uh, the racism and segregation of the 60s. You go through a place like 1968 where some of America's great voices are literally getting assassinated in front of us on television. And people said it's over. America's done. But we stood. The institutions stood strong. We rallied back. We went through 9-11. We went through a pandemic. The institution stood strong. Let me put it a different way. polls come and go... But America is here First, to First word of the night? It really is. And I'm, I'm very optimistic. And I used to be a little bit more pessimistic and stuff. And I don't mind telling you, it was, I had a great conversation, it was George W. Bush. I had a great conversation with him. And he really walked me through this and he, he, he shares that optimism that I do that, you know, tough times can come and go, but don't let that define the long term where we're going, right? At the end of the day, you know who decides the leadership of this country? You, the voter, that's it. Don't fool yourselves any other way. Right. And that's why I'm so strong when I get behind Nikki Haley and I've done a lot of this stuff. I want I want voter turnout. If you can vote in a primary, but for some reason you didn't show up, that's on you. That is not on the system. That's on you. You chose not to participate. I think the voter in in South Carolina, which will happen this Saturday, um, just to pick on them a little bit. But the average voter turnout, there's like 15 percent. Right. I mean, like we have like 60 plus, 70 percent voter turnout in New Hampshire. And even that isn't enough for me. Right. So the fact that you have so many people and that's average for most for most of the country, 15, 20 percent of people actually vote in their primaries. But if you want a different candidate of Biden or Trump, which most of us do, most everybody does. Right. Then you got to participate. But you have such low voter participation that is not on the system. That isn't because it's broken. That isn't because I another candidate raised more money. That's because you chose not to show
2: up. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican at the Politico Governors Summit in Washington. (laughs) Wall Street today, the Dow up 456, Nasdaq up 460, S&P up 105. A Reuters story early afternoon, AT&T said three-quarters of its network has been restored after a cellular phone outage on Thursday disrupted calls and text messages for thousands of U.S. users prompting an investigation by federal agencies. The wireless carrier whose 5G network covers around 290 million people across the United States has been grappling with interruptions to its service for more than 9 hours. The Federal Communications Commission said it is investigating the incident, while the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency said it is working with AT&T to understand the cause. The outage affected people's ability to reach emergency services by dialing 911, according to posts on the ex-social media platform by government departments in several U.S. cities. That was from Reuters. An update from John Kirby, the White House National Security Communications Advisor, at his online audio briefing.
16: We'll go to Zeke Miller from the
2: Associated Press. Do
16: you have any uh, details? Uh, has the NSC been briefed in contact regarding these reported cell outages or any reason to believe that they may be the result of any sort of foreign and, uh, malign activity? On the AT and T issue or the, the 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 cellular network issue, uh, as I understand it, Zeke, um, the FCC has been in touch with AT and T, and those conversations are ongoing. And they're trying to kind of figure out what exactly happened here. Um, I don't think all networks have been restored, but as my understanding is that that uh, everybody but AT and T is back up and running uh, completely right now. Um, I also can tell you that the that DHS and the FBI are looking into this as well working with the tech industry the, these network providers uh to see what we can do from a federal perspective to lend hand to their investigative efforts to figure out what happened here. But the bottom line is if we we don't have all the answers to that. I mean this just happened uh, uh, earlier today and so we're we're working uh very hard to see if we can get to the to ground truth of exactly what what happened not to mention I I, I know, Uh, folks in the industry are are working hard to get restoration of services to those that are still uh, without those services.
2: John Kirby, White House National Security Communications Director in an online audio press conference today. Some Verizon and T-Mobile cell users also reported problems. Both companies said those affected had been trying to contact AT&T users. From Associated Press, China plans to send a new pair of giant pandas to the San Diego Zoo, renewing its long-standing gesture of friendship toward the United States after nearly all the iconic bears on loan to U.S. zoos were sent back as relations soured between the two nations. San Diego Zoo officials told the Associated Press that if all permits and other requirements are approved, two bears, a male and a female, are expected to arrive by the end of the summer, about five years after the zoo sent its last pandas back to China. China's official state-run news agency, Xinhua, posted a video. The China Wildlife Conservation Association has inked agreements with Madrid Zoo Aquarium of Spain and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance of the United States concerning cooperation on the conservation of giant pandas as part of efforts to step up the protection of the species on a global level. Currently, the association is also holding consultations with another U.S. zoo and an Austrian zoo on such cooperation, it said. Spain, the United States, and Austria were among the first countries to carry out international cooperation with China regarding giant panda conservation. Thanks to the joint efforts of their research teams, China and these three countries have managed to breed a total of 28 giant panda cubs. A video from China's official state-run news agency. Back to the Associated Press article, the China Wildlife Conservation Association said Thursday it also signed the cooperation agreements with zoos in the Spanish capital of Madrid and in talks with zoos in Washington, D.C. and Vienna. And fears over the future of so-called panda diplomacy escalated last year when the zoos in Washington, D.C. and Memphis, Tennessee returned their pandas to China, leaving only four pandas in the United States all at the zoo in Atlanta. The loan agreement expires later this year. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter, Word for Word, and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.